This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, January the 22nd, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the Monday horns and go. The horns are a little sluggish on a Monday. You probably find that relatable. Coming up on the show today, the federal liberals are holding a cabinet retreat in Montreal. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will have the latest. You may recall that last week I was telling you all about a company called Clicks that introduced a physical keyboard for the iPhone. It was featured on Useful or Useless with Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore. And now Sean Priest of Double Tap wants to weigh in with his thoughts on the device and then compares it to a tactile Braille device by Inside One. Looking forward to that chat. Always enjoy catching up with Sean. And the Montreal Open Goalball Tournament is taking place this weekend. Peter Parsons previews the event. Lots coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Hope you had a lovely weekend. Let's begin the show with the top story of the week. And it's kind of a dour one. My apologies. Drought conditions in the prairies are expected to create big trouble for farmers this spring. Michelle Zadikian explains. Federal mapping shows that 81% of agricultural land in Canada is either abnormally dry or in a state of drought this winter. When drought causes crops to fail, there may not be enough vegetation on fields in the early spring to hold down the topsoil. Dry and windy conditions can lead to clouds of dust lifting off the fields and blowing onto roads, into ditches, or onto neighbors' property, something that's been increasing in southern Alberta in recent years. The problem is costly for municipalities that have have to clean up afterwards and for farmers who lose valuable soil. Michelle Zadikian, the Canadian Press. And over to economics. This one's a little bit more optimistic. There's some new survey data that paints a rosy picture about the U.S. economy. Daria Albinger takes a closer look. The National Association for Business Economics says things are looking pretty good for the U.S. economy. Sales and profit margins rising, steady employment plans with less concerns over labor shortages and rising capital investment. Named Sarah Rutledge on the latest business conditions survey and as far as a major worry. There's also indication that inflation may be moderating. Most respondents also say the chance of a recession this year is 50% or lower. Daria Albinger, ABC News. One of my favorite podcasters, Derek Thompson, he uh, writes for The Atlantic as a podcast called Plain English. He did a podcast a few weeks ago about a soft landing recession, which is pretty much what's been experienced right now, especially on the Canadian side, but even the American side as well, that it might not be one of these years of gangbusters economic growth, but certainly a more stabilized economic picture. Okay, let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked all about Montreal and their plan to create a 24-hour party zone downtown. How would you feel about one in your city? 23% of you said good and 77% of you said bad. 
Over on Facebook, Crafton Deborah says, I live downtown Saskatoon. We have enough trouble without that. Taryn writes in, bad. Las Vegas has 24-hour entertainment, and the number of law enforcement officers in crime is very high. Philippe writes in, yes, it would be great because maybe I would play some more music in my very own region of Claire Edmonston and maybe elsewhere. I would like that a lot. Maria chimes in, bad. There are already enough of these happening, and adding more will be impossible to handle. And John says, bad. While it would to be good for other factors, such as current zoning and no noise bylaws would require adjustments, there's also... In, there's also added traffic, need for extra policing and emergency services, and transit operations. So a lot of thoughtful comments there from you out there in viewer vortex in the listener land zone. And that was a topic of conversation as part of the news panel on Friday. So if you did miss that with myself, Michelle McQuig, and Joey DeCupta, you can find that on the Now with Dave Brown podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Okay, let's get to today's daily poll, and it's about some good vibes. Trying to bring some good vibes on a Monday morning over here. The Rideau Canal has opened for skating in Ottawa. What is something that your region does to create local winter flavor? So a few examples that I'll share here, and again, please feel free to share anything from your neck of the woods that you like. So I've got the Rideau Canal in Ottawa, super cool. Ice Hotels in Quebec, also a very cool annual tradition. Northern Lights event in northern parts of provinces, specifically in the prairies. You actually get stuff like in Edmonton itself, Northern Lights events, that's super, super cool. So. The poll available at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on X. Laura Bain, I brought this question to the table this morning because there was outright utter joy in Ottawa yesterday when the canal opened. It did not get open last year, and you could really tell that people were feeling darn good about the canal being open yesterday. Yeah, well, something kind of similar comes to mind for me here, which is the Halifax Oval. So this is an outdoor skating rink, but, uh, you know, unlike the canal, this is refrigerated, so it can endure temperatures up to somewhere around 10 degrees and maintain its its ice. So this opened in Halifax within the last decade, and it's really just super popular. And I think there's kind of two things that are really great about it which is that it uh, they have all kinds of equipment available and so you think yeah there's skates and there's helmets but there's also a lot of adaptive equipment they've got about half a dozen different types of adaptive sleds uh, and things like that including of course uh, sledge sleds but all of this equipment is completely free like the skates and everything there's no cost for it so that's what makes this so accessible and you see it all people from really all walks of life using it. So a lot of families, I think this is the regular thing to, you know, bring the family out on the weekend or whatever, but it also makes a popular date spot, you know, and sometimes there's, uh, you know, they have music playing and everything. So it's a really nice atmosphere. And it also is, uh, it flips in the summer and becomes like a roller biking, skateboarding. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, yeah, there you go. You see it's flavor all year round. I like that one. I especially like that you mentioned the low, low cost of free. Three ninety nine mm-hmm. for uh, folks who want to use that because that that could be a big barrier and that's something that's very very cool. Elizabeth Moeller, you're filling in for Alex Smythe today. You are no stranger to Southern Ontario and a little bit of Western Ontario as well. What are some examples of local flavor in the winter time? 
Yeah. So it's funny you use the word flavor because there's two things that I love in Toronto. One is winterlicious. So it's something that happens towards the end of January, every winter. They also have one in the summer called summerlicious, but this one focuses on restaurants that are maybe a little bit higher end that people maybe couldn't go to due to financial barriers. And you get uh, a set menu and you get a three course meal. So I'm excited this year to try one called Mr. Jerk, um, which, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, is, is, uh, I do love me some spicy food. So it's a nice way to, for businesses to bring in people, but also for you to get out, especially as a student, fine dining isn't something I do a lot. So I'm excited about that. And also, I don't know if you've done the Sugar Beach, but that's a beach here in Toronto. And every March they have, well, the Sugar Shack, where you can go learn about maple syrup, uh, try your hand at making some. And I don't know, like for a long time, I I think I kind of didn't understand the process and how finicky it was. I'm like, it comes in a bottle and I put it on my food. But it's really nice to be able to kind of like go out and experience how it like literally from like sap to the to the bucket yeah. and the syrup it's it's really fun growing up in montreal sugaring off is a big big <sighs> ah, deal like yes. it's a huge part of the cultural identity so i'm really i'm really happy that you mentioned that one because yeah in the in, in the laurentian part of this country sugaring off is a big big deal and it's super super cool to get some of that fresh maple Circle. Okay, that's the daily poll. You can answer it at Accessible Media on X. You can also chime in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You are not limited to social media, though. Don't forget that. You can always send over an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call. 1-866-509-4545, one 509 if you go the route of leaving a voicemail please give permission for it to be played on the air from coast to coast to coast on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv on the digital airwaves of AMI-plus.ca or around the world via the AMI-audio podcast network. Coming up next, the federal liberals are holding a cabinet retreat in Montreal. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will have the latest. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The federal liberal cabinet is holding a retreat in Montreal. The event kicked off last night. And Michelle McQuig has the latest on the story. Michelle is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Good morning, Michelle. Morning, Dave. How are you? I'm good, Michelle. I quite literally mean the latest. One of the cool things about doing a live television show is that at 9.12 a.m. Eastern time, news is breaking in real time. And during the commercial break, you were like, hey, have you seen this? I'm like, no, I've been (laughs) I've been getting ready to do a television show the last 25 minutes. So, Michelle, what's the latest out of the retreat? So the very latest out of the retreat, and I'm talking about how the, the, the I'm looking at something in our system that will you'll be able to read in about 30 seconds or so. But uh, Immigration Minister Mark Miller has decided to put a two-year cap on new student visa imis- admissions, and that's going to ultimately lead to about a 35% reduction in those kinds of visas and fees. Wow. Uh, so 
yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a big announcement. Uh, I wish I could give you more details, but as I said, this is literally breaking right now, and the first version just hit the wire, so you all should be able to read that momentarily. Uh, but this is what's happening. Uh, th there was some chatter about this. The government was under a bit of pressure to face uh, to do something about student visas, and, and it's all tied to the foreign interference topic that we've talked about so much. We might even revisit it on the panel. Uh, but this is where we are right now. This is one of many things that are expected to come out of the cabinet retreat in Montreal over the next couple of days. Yeah, that, that's been one of the big narratives here, especially in the last three to four weeks when some of the uh, 2023 immigration numbers finally came out. There's been a lot of conversation about foreign Foreign students about the yes. about the inf the influx of a growing population in the context of the housing and healthcare crisis. So, so this is certainly a response to what's been a big narrative point for the better part of four weeks. That's correct, and that's going to be sort of what the cabinet is trying to do for the next couple of days, is get on top of a couple of of very very. Uh, persistent files in, in areas where the government has taken a lot of flack, not just from the opposition, but in the polls, most yeah, notably. Yeah. Um, so that's really where the focus is going to be. There was another cabinet retreat in August that sounded like it was going to be focusing on a lot of the same things. So I think they're facing even more pressure this time, six months later, to actually take some action. There were some things, some concrete measures that came out of the last cabinet retreat. Uh, but well, yeah, the the, the the grocery like the grocery summits like a lot of a lot of the 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 the, the grocery policies in terms of affordabilities yeah. like really did come out of the last August liberal retreat summit. Very much so, but it didn't do a whole lot to move the public opinion needle, which no. is, of course is where they're focusing their attention right now. Uh, so they've made it quite clear that affordability is still top of mind. That's where they're going to be focusing most of their attention on today: affordability, housing, and uh, and the Canada-U.S. relationship. Interestingly, is going to take up a lot of space tomorrow too. Absolutely. Certainly in an election year and uh, with some yeah. comments last week that were made about the general tussle between the two countries, as well as the availability of certain pharmaceuticals and drugs. That's been, again, it's all these bubbling narratives that have been really yeah. uh, in the press <laughs> for about a month now, while Parliament has not been sitting. So they, have a, they sort of had, had a chance to boil over a little bit without sort of official responses. Michelle, there was one piece of news that broke last night about hosting <laughs> a summit related to auto theft amidst increasing uh, car, car theft in the country. Yes, that, that is indeed something that happened yesterday. Uh, but to our surprise, we didn't see that one coming. Um, but the feds have announced that they, they, they had a lot of numbers to back it up to the, the fact that auto thefts are have, have been spiking dramatically. Like we're talking hundreds of percentages of increases over, over a handful of years. Almost every province is reporting it. Uh, they had all kinds of stats to back up why they've decided to call this summit in February with, with the provinces, with RCMP, with various police forces, auto manufacturers even are going to be in on the mix. Uh, it, it, it's a we're not entirely sure what, what prompted this in particular, but but here we are. This this is going yeah, to happen next month. That, that this is one where anecdotally uh, people are certainly talking about this. One of my friends runs a moving company, and they've had a huge issue with people stealing ca catalytic converters from uh, their vehicles. That's right. So yeah, that's been a big one for years. Yeah, catalytic converters. Yeah, so it's not so it's not just sort of the stealing of the physical vehicle; it's stealing some of the resources related to the vehicle. So they're, yeah. they're like it's it's certainly something that once again it's. It's been brambling whether or not it's part of a generalized auto theft trend. It's certainly something that people are talking about. It's become it's become one more layer of complexity in the micro economy. For sure. And, and I will say that there are definitely numbers to suggest that it's not just anecdotal that you're talking about here. 
I, I forget that I don't have the numbers right in front of me this moment, but my colleague Mia Rabson had them in her story yesterday. You know, auto thefts went up something like 50% in Ontario and Quebec in the past couple of years, I want to say. Wow. Uh, 35%. And there was another province that documented that. Um, many, many, many stats. Again, I, I would love to get a real national picture of this issue, but even the preliminary data suggests that there is at least something to it. Uh, still, the, the notion of an auto theft summit is, is one that uh, took a few of us by surprise. Yeah, definitely. It's not... <laughs> It wasn't one that was on yeah. the radar. It wasn't. It wasn't a talking no. point going into the week, going into the weekend. That is, but it popped that up is last quite night. Fair. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Michelle, let, let's get to a different story that you and your colleagues mm. were following over the weekend. This one's like a little bit less newsy per se, but it is really fascinating. It's about diplomat compensation, specifically yeah. for people who work for the Foreign Service working in the United States. What's at issue here? So my colleague Dylan Robertson, who is just like a, a maven on all things foreign affairs, and I highly suggest you give him a read, um, he had a chat with the head of the Foreign Service Workers Union, um, which I, I actually did, had not known existed. But what she was saying is that for Global Affairs Canada has been having difficulty filling a lot of U.S. postings, despite the prestige that often comes with those. And what she is saying is that she thinks global affairs ought to offer some more top-ups and that people are getting scared off American postings because of gun crime and access to health care in the States. Uh, so that's quite a bold statement. Cause, that's cause a American very posting, bold statement. Yeah, it really is, because American postings are, are extremely prestigious. They have a lot of advantages, of course, that they're, they're not exactly hardship postings. They're the kind of things that people sort of strive for later in their career, historically, anyhow. Um, but she talks about how people who have been in these postings have had to witness multiple school shootings and office evacuations and, and deal with directly with the aftermath of of the gun violence that we know is, is rampant there and that they're really struggling with uh, on a regular basis. Um, she feels that that sort of information is the kind of thing that would make it into a posting if it was for any other country other than the Canada and the U.S., um, and so that's sort of the basis for her her call for action. That's a healthcare one is interesting too, in light of the fact that she's saying many people the the, the fact that the U.S. has no public health care at all to speak of leaves people without fallback options if they need immediate treatment, um, insurance. Uh, we all know about the, the difficulties that that can present uh, when trying to seek health care when you don't have coverage. Um, so all of these reasons are, are why she's feeling the need for, for some action. But this uh, this call of hers is far from unanimous. There are definitely voices out there saying that's an absolutely absurd position to take. Why should people be paid more to live and work in a country where, can, where many Canadians quite happily go on vacation? Uh, this is the most important relationship we have. There's no way that there should be, there should be additional incentives. Uh, so it's, it's quite a... Very, the voices in this particular story, and I suspect the reaction more broadly, is going to be pretty polarized on this. Well, yeah, because, black and white. Be, because people perceive diplomats, like you said, as this prestigious, high-paid job where you're just having like these high-level dinner parties and having a great time. Mm -hmm. But it's worth noting, this isn't simply about giving ambassadors who get to live in a nice house and a nice apartment a big raise. This is about no. a lot of support staff who don't make a ton, like they make a good living. They don't make a ton of money. And a city like Washington, 
Washington, D.C., whether or not you live in Washington or Maryland or Virginia, it is not a cheap place to live. And then you factor in things like, yeah, if I'm, am I going to send my kid to a school where someone's going to break in with a gun one day? Like, like, like I, I, I get I, I get the position that, that a rank-and-file global affairs worker would feel about this, right? Because it's not just champagne parties. Absolutely not. And it's not just Washington, D.C. There are consulates all over the United States and cities all over the country. So there are the regional when people talk about regional politics in the United States, a lot of the, those conversations don't necessarily apply to D.C., but they are relevant to, to diplomats posted all over the place. So, yeah, no, there's it's, it's quite an interesting back and forth. And there, what we don't know, unfortunately, is what global affairs thinks. Uh, they, right, right. We, we, they have not weighed in on this one. And as you can just imagine, uh, there would be a lot of uh, it would be fairly fraught to, to to retackle any kind of classifications of these postings, because, of course, the implications for the U.S.-Canada relationship um, would be significant. Yeah, if there they... was any indication <laughs> that that would suggest that these are hardship postings in any way uh, that would raise a few questions on, on the U.S. side. Well, you know, uh, maybe they deserve to have some questions raised. All right, Michelle, one more. Let's end on uh, positive vibes here. Uh, your voice went national yesterday as you did a voicer for the Canadian press all about the Rideau Canal in Ottawa opening. <laughs> and this is good vibes. Like, there's no negativity to this. Totally. This is like a wonderful yeah, story. Yeah, it's just a win. Yeah, it's lovely. It's uh, the Rideau Canal... You know, a classic of Canada, a point of national pride, as one of my coworkers put it over the weekend. It's really cool. Um, it was closed since the end of the 2022 season. Last winter was too warm and it never opened up at all. And that was the first time it had ever happened. And I understand for all the residents of Ottawa, it just sucked not to have that available. This year, it wasn't looking good. Uh, even just last week, we were still hearing reports of how they, we weren't sure if things would reopen. But along came a cold snap. The ice got to form. It got thick enough. And part of it did reopen yesterday. So skaters were back on the ice. And apparently a good time was had by many, even on a more truncated route. Uh, they've only got about a kilometer of it open right now, but they're planning to expand more. So hopefully Ottawa will get the entire skateway back, the whole uh, multi-kilometer stretch of it all running through the city at some point this year. All the way from Dow's Lake right to the downtown core. It's one of the coolest features of a city that I've ever experienced, Michelle. People will oh, people will commute to work on their skates. Right? Like people will that's skate so, into awesome. work. Like like how right? cool oh, is that? That's amazing. That's so amazing. Like I've 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 skated on the Rito and visiting people there, but that's a whole other thing of just like actually Tra traversing your city on on ice like that That's yeah cool. it's it's such a unique thing that gives the city a lot of personality and a city that sometimes is underestimated for some of the personality that it offers it is just it is just an amazing amazing thing and residents of the city it's not just tourists residents adore no. it. my my phone was blowing up yesterday with people in the city being like dave we're so excited we get to go skating today or get to go skating this week and michelle you mentioned and you're like thanks guys well, yeah, thanks. I live thanks in this. I live in this garbage concrete jungle. Um, but <laughs> I lost my train of thought here, uh, Michelle. Yeah, you mentioned like the, you mentioned that it never got open last year. That's because the National Capital Commission, who runs the Rideau Canal, has a lot of rules about how thick the ice needs to be and how many yeah. and how many days consecutively of below minus ten before you're actually allowed to open the canal. Because you know, public safety and hypothermia and drowning and all that jazz. 
Yeah, not a great look if it were to happen. And in fact, we had a reminder on the weekend of how dangerous the ice can be when a, a, here in Toronto, a car actually lost control, oh my gosh. crashed through the ice into the lake, and, and an 18-year-old man is dead as a result of it. So ice safety is no joke. The National Capital Commission uh, has very strict rules that they're quite strict about. Um, I think it's 30 centimeters is the minimum threshold for ice thickness. I believe, so, I believe that's it. And it's got to be minus 10 for like 10 days consecutively. Yeah, yeah, I forget what the specific criteria are, but they're rigid and, and frankly, they make a lot of sense. And they are saying that, uh, in fact, to the point where they announced the reopening on Saturday and said it would be open at nine. And then on Sunday morning, they said, actually, we need like three and a half more hours. Yeah, We flooded the thing again overnight. It needs a little, just a little bit more time to set and then everyone can come out and play. Yeah. So that's what happened. And they're, they're, they are saying that they're planning to maintain this and it's that that's why they've only opened a limited stretch of the canal so far. They just want the safety conditions to be uh, more uniform. And Michelle, that's what leads to the daily poll today at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's all about the Rideau Canal and the good winter vibes and the local flavor that it provides. And the question to the general public here is, what's something in your neck of the woods that offers that winter local flavor? Now, of course, some examples that I pointed to are the Rideau Canal, ice hotels in Quebec, like that's a super awesome annual fixture. Oh, yeah. uh, there's also Northern Lights groups in cities like Edmonton, for example. They track when there's going to be uh, northern lights and they get together and they hang out and they watch the northern lights like that's incredible so michelle what's yeah. uh, what's what's a good example of some like great winter local flavor in, in maybe this horrible neck of the woods tobogganing hills there's some really fun ones boom um, simplicity i like that yeah yeah no never underestimate tobogganing it's the best um yeah that's that's like i i i have to confess i i don't like love winter and and have, I've been taking full advantage of the winter amenities in the past few years. So there may be some cooler attractions, but I did hear you guys talking about maple sugar production. And that actually is a big one for my family specifically. Uh, we were, we were uh, half my family is Quebecois. So I actually associate sort of end of winter and early spring with, with that sort of thing. Nice. It's, uh, it's not, 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 not deep winter, but uh, touring maple sugar bushes in the winter and getting like fresh syrup on snow and that kind of stuff is, is another sort of winter yeah. classic. Don't forget the big greasy <laughs> breakfast they give you at the Loge before you go out, before they put you on who, the horse. Like, good stuff over who could here. Forget, who could forget that? Oh, yeah. man, pork and beans. Uh, Michelle, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Talk to you on, on Friday. <laughs> Sounds good. Take care, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, starting a business could be a little bit easier in the digital age, but you still need money. You need financing. So Kelly Braun Johnson can give some tips on how to get that company off the ground. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Over 2.9 million people are self-employed in Canada, according to StatsCan. Starting a business could be a little easier in the digital age. You still need a lot of things to get your company off the ground, including money, financing, dinero, cash. So what's that like? Kelly Braun Johnson has some experience with this. Kelly is the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, Kelly, good morning. Nice to chat with you today. Hi, good morning, Dave. So, Kelly, let's start with the general. 
what's it like trying to get a business financed? So in my experience, um, you know, traditional funding pathways have been very, very difficult for me. Um, I think specifically because I, it was such a foreign concept to me. I wasn't raised um, to be an entrepreneur. There's no entrepreneurs in my family. Um, I didn't come from any money or wealth at all. So um, the act of writing a business plan and uh, creating financials and using spreadsheets and all that is completely foreign to me. So I needed a lot of help. It's something that I needed a lot of guidance in and, and support. Um, and so there's, of course, there's the traditional methods of uh, applying to a bank and getting a loan or um, or then there's using venture capital. Um, but I never really fit into that world either. Um, I've only run businesses that are service-based and I find that venture capitalists are more interested in a product-based mm. um, sort of business and unless you're creating something like an app. Um, so I don't really fit into any of those uh, categories. Yeah, the traditional pillars of financing. The other side of this, Kelly, is that in the last 18 months with the interest rate propositions changing, how has that change in economic landscape, landscape impacted the ability for anybody to get financing? So I think in general, everybody is struggling um, all over. So businesses are steady, are struggling. Um, all of the economy is struggling with this infl inflation. Um, uh, for me, I was never comfortable with really wanting to go into debt. Um, even though they say, you know, some debt is good. You know, they have these different sayings and things, but that was not something that um, I wanted for my own business. Um, and I think that in general, banks are being more choosy. Venture capitalists are being much more choosy about um, who and what they fund. Um, some of the awards and grants that are available, they've been kind of either very restricted in who they're giving them to or the amounts of the awards are being reduced greatly. Um, I'm seeing that a lot where, um, again, those kind of grants that normally used to be, let's say, 15000 are now kind of being reduced to 9000 or mm. um, and you're still going through the same process of trying to apply, but you're getting less money for it. Um, and that's totally their right. Like, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining about those things. It's just, it's just the reality that we're living in right now. Yeah, it's, it's just the real world. It, like, like, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not great, but it's, it's, it's the real world, and that's, and that's just the way these things go. Uh, Kelly, I also think about the, the way in which maybe in the last decade people were picking up financing through things like a Kickstarter or other crowdfunding because of the saturation in that space. What was a pretty interesting incubator or, or interesting opportunity for people? in the digital world, even that's drying up a little bit too. Yes. And, uh, you know, some of the different controversies that have gone in with those kind of funding methods uh, where people weren't getting the money that they, you know, they said they were going to, or they're funding certain things that people have ethical issues with. So I think that whole method of funding worked really great for a short period of time. And now it's, it's like you said, it's kind of saturated. It's, it has not necessarily the best reputation. Yeah. Self-employment for people with disabilities is oftentimes touted as a solution to the overall employment issue facing people with disabilities. Rabia Khader of Disability Without Poverty came on the show a few months ago and made, made that case, said starting your own business is a really great idea if, if you've got something there and you want to do it. But if you applied the funding picture or the incubation picture for persons with disabilities when it comes to becoming an entrepreneur, what's what's unique about that situation for people with disabilities? So there are some um, associations, some nonprofits that are devoted to funding uh, specifically disability-led businesses. Um, I think what's unique is that 
when we go to banks, um, if we are receiving uh, any sort of tax credits or we're receiving any sort of disability uh, benefits, the bank doesn't see that as a consistent income, even though it is a consistent income. Um, they don't um, want to accept that as um, part of your whole finance package. Um, so it makes it look like there's a huge gap in, in your application. Um, and of course, we can still apply for um, for regular types of traditional funding, of course. But I find that, um, you know, in traditional funding, you need a good social network and people with disabilities tend to have kind of smaller social networks. Um, and there's also that saying when they say, you know, deals are made on the golf course or deals are made at the lunch table. And, yeah. and, and that's not something that I can do. <laughs> I can't play golf. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, trying to go and wine and dine somebody at a meal is, is also not really um, feasible or accessible to me. So uh, I think a lot of those opportunities we're, we're missing out. We're not, it's just not accessible to us. So we're not uh, getting those kind of insider networking opportunities for funding either. What, to get a little bit more into the abstract, what's the parallel you draw between support for people with disabilities starting disability-led businesses and the way workers with disabilities are viewed more generally? So I've seen that, you know, we're often underemployed, even if we are employed at all. Um, and so there's this this um, lack of value placed on our work, on our labor. Um, and businesses with uh, that are disability led are often uh, undervalued and underestimated. And I can't tell you the number of times, uh, especially at the beginning when I when I started this business, uh, when I would tell people what I was doing, automatically, automatically, they assumed that it was a nonprofit. Um, and it's just because, hey, if a person with disability is running it, that must mean it's a nonprofit. Like, of course, we can't make money. Um, and so it, it's it's that underestimation of what we can do, of the value of what we can bring. Um, I think people are then hesitant to invest in us because they just don't see us as capable of making money. Um, and that that's similar in the workplace where we're not treated um, as if we have the same capacity to uh, provide worth. We're not, in some cases, in sheltered workshops that still exist and are still legal in Canada where we're not even paid for our work at all. Um, and I just looked it up just before... Um, Coming on today, you know, the average wage for a person with a disability in Canada is just over thirty-two thousand, which is about sixteen fifty an hour. That's just about a dollar more than the minimum wage here in Quebec. Um, we're still making seventy-nine cents to, I guess, the average person's dollar. I guess the yeah, yeah. man, you know. So like, um, there's a lot of work to. There's a lot to go. Like we 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 have to do a lot of work to kind of um, bring up our impression, our, our, the way that we are observed, the way that we're treated in, in the workplace and in business. Kelly, if I wanted to end this on a little bit of optimism, though, it does feel like the sands are shifting a little bit. I know uh, Invest Ottawa, for example, has uh, workshops and groups and support groups for entrepreneurs with disabilities specifically. There's organizations that are doing entrepreneurial training for kids with disabilities. So it does at least feel like the sands are shifting. And in the digital age, I'll go back to this digital age concept, It, it in theory, in prospect, can 
can be easier to do some of that startup work at a slightly lower cost than it used to. I'm not saying that anything's been accomplished here, but it does at least feel like there's a shift in the sands. No, absolutely. And that's a that's a way that we can reach out to not just mentorship, but reaching out to people with expertise that want to join on our team to partner with, um, that can provide the the supports and the services that we need to to make an amazing company. So there you go. Optimism at the end. Optimism at the end. I like that. Hey Kelly, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, founder of Completely Inclusive. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. Bay Street ended last Friday on an up note lifted by the technology, utilities and financial sectors. Toronto's S&P TSX gained 150 points to close at 20,907. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average also enjoyed a positive close last week, gaining 395 points to settle at 37,864. As for the Nasdaq, it rose 255 points to 15,311. Two of the major Asian markets were heading in different directions this morning. Japan's Nikkei finishing up 584 points at 36,547. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong, it closed down 348 points at 14,900. And 61. Drought on the prairies is raising the risk that farmers' valuable topsoil will go blowing in the wind. And Cineplex and the Competition Bureau will meet this Tuesday to discuss online booking fees. As for the loony, it's trading at 74.47 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Oh yes, online booking fees for the privilege of using your app, which is pretty much the only way to buy a movie ticket. It's now two dollars or a buck fifty. It's uh, it's a lot of cash. And then if you go to the self serve kiosk, you get you get charged for doing that too. Uh, oh boy, oh boy. Okay, let's bring in Elizabeth Moeller for the uh, weather story of the day. Elizabeth, slippery and sloppery around the GTA in southern Ontario. Slippery and slidey indeed. So South uh, Southern Ontario is about to get a little bit warmer, but first we're going to have to deal with some slippery, slidey, sloppy conditions, going for some alliteration there. There are a couple of systems that are going to be coming our way that are going to bring some bursts of snow, which is going to make travel just that little bit trickier today and Tuesday. So even though that nicer weather is on the horizon, a cold front from the northern prairies will slow down that warm-up for us. And this means that we're going to see some snowfall at the beginning of this week, which is going to cause some potential travel issues. Monday and Tuesday in particular are days that we want to be cautious of as these systems are going to bring a couple of rounds of snow to us. Tuesday's snowfall looks a little bit more serious with the potential for 5 to 10 centimeters of snow across the region including the greater Toronto area. And although it's going to be milder, there is a disturbance from the southwest bringing periods of light snow throughout the day. Lake Huron is going to see up to five centimeters of snow. And with those temperatures hovering near freezing, the snow will be wet and this will impact travel. But I will say, Dave, although I'm glad for these warmer temperatures, five to ten centimeters, I spent a lot of time in London, Ontario, where it's very snowy a lot of the time. I think I can manage five to ten centimeters of <laughs> 
snow? What are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, don't don't make me do my usual thing where I dump on Torontonians for being soft. Oh, but, okay. uh, but yeah, right. Torontonians are soft. <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you for this. You're welcome, Dave. That's Elizabeth Moeller with the weather story of the day. Coming up after the break, Society of the Snow is about the 1972 Andes flight disaster. You may recall it being depicted in the movie Alive. Well, this one's a new take on it. Amy Amanti will review the film. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Society of the Snow is a film based on a true story. The 1972 plane crash that left passengers and a Ugandan rug- uh, sorry, Uruguayan rugby team stranded in the Andes Mountain. You also may recall that it's been used before to make a movie, the 1993 movie Alive with Ethan Hawke. Here's a clip from Society of the Snow. A plane leaves a hangar. In an airport, a man meets his teammates. The team is photographed outside the Carrasco airport. The plane takes off, and the team fools around in the cabin. Turbulence shakes the plane. Please fasten your seatbelts. Passengers are flung about. Based on the remarkable true story, people awaken. From J.A. Bayona, the plane lies in a mountain snowfield. Survivors survey the scene. Any idea where we are? Director of The Impossible and The Orphanage. Look at me. Someone's broken leg is set. Spain's official submission for the Academy Awards. You can't see the plane. They could fly over and they still wouldn't see us. What happens when the world deserts you? A man cries, help. Survivors set up a radio. When you have no clothes and you're freezing, a man climbing in a snowstorm says, we won't make it to the top. When you have no food and you're dying. Oh, gosh. Uh, intensity. Intensity through and through. Let's bring in Amy Amanti for a film review on this one. Hey, good morning, Amy. Morning, Dave. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Amy, you're about to get on a play plane. Why on earth? Why on earth would you watch a movie about a plane crash? Um, because I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm a masochist, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm actually a sucker for these, uh, true story kind of movies. And I saw the 1993, uh, movie alive yeah, when same. I was 11. Um, and so that one had a really big impact on me and I kind of just wanted to see how this one compared. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's been 20 years since they made it the last time, right? So, so there, yep. there's some there's some reason to retell the story 20 years later, especially yep. because it is an interesting story. So, what did you find interesting about the creation of this film? You know, what I I thought was interesting because I um you know was watching the two and I was comparing the two and then I rewatched Alive just to you know watch the two of them you know closer together in time just so that my memory was fresh about these two films and then was doing a little bit of research because as, as you probably can guess there are many books that are written about this same story um but the book that was written that told a lot uh, about the okay the book that was written that was 
that Alive was based on and the book that was written that Society of the Snow was based on was written by two different authors at two different times, mm. even though it's the same story. And the book that Society of the Snow was based on was ba uh, was told by a Uruguayan uh, uh, author, journalist, who was actually friends with many of the folks that were on this plane since childhood. Oh, wow. So there was a personal connection, right? And I thought, well, that's a little bit more compelling for me like the story feels a little bit more authentic also told from a uruguayan perspective as opposed to a uk author um so there felt it felt a little bit more personal to me and uh in in watching this particular story i mean uh, there is no hollywood buzz here there's no hollywood actors there's no hollywood spin there's no there's none of that these there's there's a real authenticity here, even it being spoken in uh, original languages. It was spoken in Spanish, um, although there was uh, access provided, and we'll talk. Well, you know, it was it was dubbed in English and had English um, uh, audio description, but even the English dubs uh, were really really well done mm. um, in a way that I could feel. Um, I wasn't feeling like it was a static read, right? That's that they just got an actor to read three, you know, typically we get the audio describer reading the the subtitles. That's not what was done here. It was it was dubs. So and for me, I'm not seeing the characters' faces. So I'm not getting that whole, oh, the the yeah. dialogue match <laughs> with the face, yeah. right? So it felt really authentic to me to listen to it. And I kind of like that when it's a foreign language film and I feel like I can get into it even though it's dubbed in English. Um, so a lot of those things really struck some some chords for me in um, in watching this particular film. I only I only regret that um, in trying to watch some of the clips of the interviews with the writer, um, that they were all in Spanish and I couldn't access those in yeah. English because I was trying to listen to the intent and pick out some of the Spanish words. And then I was trying to, you know, uh, press pause on the subtitles and try to figure out if I could read some of those subtitles and get some of those Spanish words. But you could feel the intent of the language. And I was just like, oh, I wish I could access what that meant because I could just feel the heart in some of those interviews. So I digress, Dave, but some of these no, things really stood out to me in this in this film. I, I think the dubbing side is something that you and I have talked about before yeah. when you want to consume foreign films as someone who is legally blind or yeah. blind or totally blind. It is a barrier, and for years, dubbing was absolutely awful, regardless of regardless of like the, the the lack of sync between the mouth on screen and the words yeah. that were coming out. Is that the dubbing was actually bad? It was yeah. it was it was objectively a bad experience to watch a movie through dubbing, and it really feels like in the last five or six years. People are starting, studios and directors and producers are starting to realize that dubbing is a viable option and a viable way for people to consume these movies. They yeah. don't want to read subtitles for three straight hours. They want to listen to good dubbing. And Amy, it makes such a difference and opens up the world of content for people like you and me to consume. Well, especially when it's an Oscar contender, and we know that that's you know that's a, that's a North American market, right? Um, so you know that that uh, you know you you basically know that the United States wants to view this film essentially. Yeah. Um, and so it makes sense for you to have that. And, and, and in fact, I, like Dave, I watched this with the dubbing, and then I watched it in Spanish. 
um, because I wanted to just feel what that felt like to watch yeah. it in Spanish yeah. after I yeah. knew what it was all about with the dubbing. Uh, my mother watched it with the dubbing and she's a sighted person and she said, you know, actually it wasn't too bad um, uh, in terms of how they do their best to try and, and match up the, the sentence structure. Um, they, they, and they hire professional actors. Yes. So you're yes. getting that in, you're getting the intent in the voice. You're, you're getting, you know, that the prep work that an actor does when they put into a character, you're not getting somebody who's just trying to spit out the words. Right. And so all of that, as you say, all of that prep work is done. It kind of reminds me of the arc of audio description. Um, you know, I hate to, I, I hate to, we've had these discussions about losing audio description to AI. Imagine if we had to dub with AI, oh, right? Like nobody would want that. So two steps um, you're backwards. Right. <laughs> Right, we're putting the quality into that work because it's an art form all on its own, and it opens up the content. So I think it's 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 really yeah, it's really worth listening to things that if you want access to foreign language films, that it's it's worth the listen. Yeah, that's one of the things I felt watching All Quiet on the Western Front uh, ahead of last year's Oscar season as well. The dubbing was just phenomenal. Yes, someone could have watched that movie with just subtitles, and that's cool, but. Yeah, the dubbing was just really, really phenomenal and never took me out. It never took me out of the movie for a single second, which is yeah. a real testament. Uh, Amy, uh, I, I know it's a bit strange because you've consumed this film in so many different ways now, yeah. but what did you think of the performances? So here's a little thing I learned about the performances before, um, well, after I, I consumed the movie, that all of the cast in this are um, all from Uruguay, and they are all... Um, newcomers to the screen and that changes your perspective on what you think of acting and we've talked about this before dave and sometimes the value of a newcomer is is that you not you're not um you're not uh having to deconstruct the bad habits of an actor you know the face the bad habits yeah, of that yeah. actor on their faces and the overacting thing that some actors tend to do um this i thought was one of the most beautiful pieces of acting that I have seen in a long time because the connection was there. And like, I'm, I'm listening to this in Spanish because the dubbing doesn't help you with the acting, right? Mm -hmm. But listening to it in Spanish and trying to connect these moments, um, you hear fear in the voice, you hear sensitivity in the voice, you hear um, moments of levity in the voice, right? Because even though these folks are terrified of being stuck on a mountain 72 days these people were stuck on a mountain um and that the trials and tribulations there are moments of levity there are moments of joy there are moments of connectivity right there are moments of camaraderie whatever you call it um, and you hear that in the storytelling of of these folks being in this place and in this time so um i actually think that this one is a good contender for for the oscars wow. i hope it wins wow yeah. amy gotta be a quick on yeah. this one but the audio description itself there's a lot of natural sweeping beauty shots here in the yep. andes uh yep. how did the describer handle both the action, the plane crash, and yep. natural beauty and cannibalism, maybe. And cannibalism, yeah. I think that there was a really great balance, especially when it comes to the natural beauty. And here's another thing that I learned about the natural beauty. <gasps> Hold your breath on this one. They went back to the actual crash site to film this movie. Wow. Can you imagine? Wow. Okay. So there you go. Uh, not very rarely does that happen. Um, so they were at the actual crash site to film this movie. But the audio description does really, really beautiful jobs in talking about the landscape of this film, setting up the world that we are in, um, and balancing that between, um, uh, like you said, the cannibalism. They've done that really tastefully. Ah, that, no oh pun intended. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, but 
yeah, you know, there, there's a sensitivity that needs to be balanced there, right? Uh, it's not a, a Simpsons episode where you pass you another hunk of co-pilot, right? Um, so there you go. Or was that Family Guy? No, no, that, that's that's the Simpsons. The Simpsons? When, when I got Marge, my, I got my... Yeah, when Marge yeah. was afraid of flying. Yeah, no, no, you got you got your <laughs> reference. You got your 30-year-old reference uh, correct on that one, Amy. Uh, Amy, yeah. uh, just one last question on the way out here. Yeah. I, think you, I think you tipped your hand a little bit, but I get yeah. the impression you recommend Society of the Snow. I would watch it. I would watch it um, even just for, you know, we say this a lot on the, uh, the, the, the movies that are based on true stories, even just to be a part of this piece of history and learn what happened. Um, we all know that there's a little bit of artistic, uh, you know, a little bit of artistic oh, uh, license of course, that's of course. taken in these kinds of things. It is a storytelling. It is a, 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 a you know, it was, we take artistic liberties, um, but to understand uh, what had happened to these folks and how these folks survived, I think it's worth the watch. Definitely worth the watch. And if you're an Oscar uh, watcher, watch it. Yeah, the next six to eight weeks is going to be a lot of uh, consuming things to play catch up on uh, or in and around the Oscars. Amy, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. I know uh, there's some transit strikes and some weather in Vancouver. Hope you're uh, staying safe. Thanks, Dave. That's Amy Amanti. You can find Society of the Snow streaming on Netflix. You do need to be mindful, though, that it is rated R. There is some uh, difficult stuff in here, so maybe not quite one for the kiddos. In one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report. But first, climate change misinformation is evolving on YouTube. Mike Dubusky takes a closer look in Tech Trends. From ABC News Tech Trends, a new report finds disinformation about climate change is undergoing a radical shift on YouTube. Away from what we call the old climate denial, that's the rejection that climate change is happening that is man-made towards what we call the new climate denial, and that's attacking the solutions. Imran Ahmed is the chief executive of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. He says they found content on YouTube spreading false information about solar energy and... Saying that things like electric cars actually use more CO2 in their supply chain than gasoline cars. Well, that's not true over their lifetime. And he says it's especially concerning given YouTube's popularity. It's one of the biggest sites in the world for billions of people. YouTube says it doesn't let users make money off videos that deny human-made climate change. First of all, they should extend that to the new climate denial. But in our report, we did find ads appearing on old climate denial content too. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Let's go from technology to the world of entertainment with Laura Bain. Laura, a bunch of Madonna fans are ticked off and suing Madonna for starting a concert late. Yes, that's right. So uh, two fans so far, there may be more that jump on board, are suing over a show in New York that started two hours late. So it was meant to start at 8.30, but instead the show started at 10.30, not ending until after 1 a.m., which for me is definitely <laughs> past my <laughs> past my bedtime. Uh, so they're, shu- they're suing the promoter and the venue for false advertising, negligent misrepresentation, and unfair and deceptive trade practices. So all three New York shows started two hours late. Concert goers weren't oh, notified at oh, all. Oh, that like I think that's a really good statement right there. Hit that one again because that's a really important yeah. factor. And we're going to get into the pattern here, but there were three New York shows. All three started two hours late, and concert goers didn't get any sort of heads up. They were just meant to kind of sit there, stand there, and wait. Buy twenty dollars beers. Exactly. 
So according to the lawsuit, this created issues for people with family and child care responsibilities and who had to get up for work the next morning. That's very relatable. And uh, it also mentions that there were more limited transportation options at oh, 1 a.m. Yeah. than oh, there would yeah. have been like two hours earlier. So uh, as I mentioned, this was this is a pattern. So Madonna has a long history of arriving and starting her concerts late. Uh, so she was also sued in 2019 over this same issue. And that same year, she made a statement on stage. I'm just going to quote it here because I think it's kind of wild. She said, there's something that you all need to understand. And that is that a queen is never late. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a Madonna being a little bit of a Madonna, a Madonna being yeah. a little bit of a diva. Exactly. And now I also found a video of her on stage from around eight years ago, being so rude to her fans, yelling at them and calling them divas and like words that I can't say on mm -hmm, morning mm -hmm. television Please don't. for complaining about her lateness and saying like, don't come to my shows if you feel that way. So Dave, I want your thoughts on this. I, I certainly feel there's an accessibility angle here we could explore, but how important do you think it is that events start on time? I think I think it's really important that events start on time or at the very least there's some clarity about time frames right if you say that the the doors to the madonna concert are opening at 8 and the show is supposed to start at 8 30 but what happens is there's going to be an opener you know a first actor a second actor going to come on that's cool tell me that Mention that objectively in my ticket, in my schedule. Give me this information as a concert goer so I can choose and build my day as I please. This seems habitual. And that's where I think the misleading business practice really matters in this lawsuit. Because if you get to if you get somewhere and you think the show starts at 8:30 and now you're standing around for two hours, you're gonna go buy a hot dog, you're gonna go buy a couple of beers, and that's just putting money into the promoter's hands that could have been spent either at home, pre-gaming, or, uh, or, or, or going to a restaurant or a bar around the arena or stadium. I just think that it's really disrespectful to expect your fans to sit around for you for a couple hours and then kind of not tell them that that's, that's the intent. I, I, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, whatever. That's life. Life happens. Uh, mm -hmm. But when you start getting into the two-hour zone, no, no, that's structural. That's deliberate. That's intentional. And it's a real jerk move. You know what? I, I completely agree. And I think that most people understand that stuff happens sometimes and a concert might have to be delayed as a one-off. But this is a pattern. And we're not talking about a $20 ticket. Because, you know, I saw some things online about, like, this is art. She's an artist. You can't whatever. No, this is, like, something that people are paying hundreds of dollars, in some cases more, to attend. So it's a big loss if you just say, you know what? My ride is waiting. My Excessa bus is waiting. Whatever. I've got to leave you could be out hundreds of dollars apart from like having wasted your evening and I can see lots of ways that this could impact someone with a disability like if you're thinking about the transportation but also what if you live with chronic pain and suddenly you're unexpectedly having to sit in an uncomfortable oh, concert awful, venue seat for awful, two hours yeah. more than you expected right let alone if you're paying like a personal care worker to be with you so I don't know now should they get like 
hundreds of thousands of no, dollars no, or no. something. No, but but they should get the cost of their ticket back and any additional expenses they had to occur. Like if someone had to take a a cab home to Jersey that night, they should probably yeah <laughs> probably get that back. Yeah, hundreds of thousands might be a little bit much, but you would hope that there's sort of a ruling that comes down that says you have to end this business practice, and that could be good for consumers of all stripes. Uh, it is lovely when something starts on time. I went to go see a show last summer that started on the minute on the button at Massey Hall and I was in my seat fist pumping. I was like, yeah, nine <laughs> o'clock on the nose. You guys started. This is awesome. Uh, Laura, thank you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, thanks, Dave. You too. I increasingly am becoming an old man. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I yell at the clouds and I think about the way things used to be and I want you artists to show up on time. Oh, boy, I got to work on that. Coming up after the break, a couple stories in the regional news update, including a B.C. transit strike affecting people this morning. And Brock Richardson reacts to what was a pretty awesome weekend in sports. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Don't forget, if you're ever not in front of your TV, you can catch the show live streaming and audio at amiplus.ca. And if you miss it completely, first of all, shame on you. Secondly, download it on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search for Now with Dave Brown. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. And when I do something really good, share it with your friends. And when I do something really bad, share it with your friends and be like, this guy stinks at his job. Why do they pay him to do it? I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, January the 22nd, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, there's a company called Clicks. You heard about them on the show last week. They've created a physical keyboard for the iPhone. Sean Priest of Double Tap will weigh in with the pros and the cons and compares it to the tactile braid device by Inside One. So doing some keyboard chatter with Sean Priest. And the Montreal Open Goalball Tournament takes place this weekend. Peter Parsons previews the event. The goalball world descending upon Montreal. But the hour begins with a very quick regional news update. Only one story to talk about this morning, but it's out of British Columbia, and it's an important one. A transit strike starts in the Vancouver area today. 180 supervisors and the Coast Mountain Bus Company failed to reach a deal over the weekend. So bus service and sea bus service in the North Shore and the West End will be completely affected. TransLink says the SkyTrain, West Coast Express, and HandyDart should not be impacted, but there are going to be higher volumes if folks can get to those places. The union says its members will be withdrawing from all services from Coast Mountain Bus Company for 48 hours. So today, tomorrow, and into Wednesday, looking at significant transit impact for people who live in West Vancouver and the North Shore. That's it. That's the regional news update. It's a bummer, but it's important. So I shared it with you. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat.
Brock sports fans still catching their breath after what was a tremendous sports weekend between the NFL playoffs, between Hockey Day in Canada, and then a whole bunch of accoutrements sprinkled all around it. Let's get to the NFL playoffs first. The semifinals are now set. The conference championship games are now set. Down to the final four, Brock. What's your big takeaway from divisional weekend? <laughs> Biggest takeaway is the Detroit Lions are are for real. I mean, Jared Goff and his team, they are rolling with confidence. Rolling. I doubted them going into this game and I can no longer doubt them. They are they are exactly what a lot of people thought they might have been. Like I said, I wasn't there, but for the first time in uh, 33-ish years, they're going to be in the uh, conference final and good for them. For doing it because like i said i wasn't on board but i guess i have to be now that was so, my first so brock takeaway. so brock forgive me why well like what did they do in yesterday's game against the tampa bay buccaneers that got you on board i just thought they were just so like they were just so efficient they just did what they had to do like they no almost no mistakes for them yesterday it was it was really really good cool to watch them and I and I thought that Baker Mayfield would have been better but the Detroit Lions were just simply better and almost mistake free football on their point and they deserve to be where they are yeah their defense really dialed up the pressure on Tampa Bay's quarterback Baker Mayfield they hit him a ton a ton and Tampa never quite adjusted to it and that goes back to what I mentioned to you on Friday it's an immeasurable statistic but the physicality that Detroit plays with is almost unmatched it's two weeks in a row they've just been pounding teams for four quarters with physicality and that in the long run is going to help you Brock my big takeaway from the weekend is that mistakes matter my favorite football cliche is that it's a game of inches and in all four games, the team that lost missed a field goal. Now, there's a lot of other ways to look at mistakes and an inch here and an inch there and taking a bad penalty. But in all four cases, a road team that was in the game that had, well, sorry, three team, three road teams that were in the game looking for an upset ended up missing a field goal at a key moment. And then, of course, the Bills-Chiefs game ends on a missed field goal as well by Tyler Bass of the Buffalo Bills. It's such a football cliche, but it's my favorite football cliche, that it's a game of inches and that gravity is a constant. And when you don't do the little things, i.e. executing on special teams, that can have such a momentous impact on how you play the game the rest of the way. And that's my big takeaway this weekend, Brock. It's a cliche, but mistakes really matter in the playoffs. And I, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth who who makes or misses these field goals, but I almost feel like field goals is that thing everybody sort of takes for granted unless it's like a, you know, 45, 54-yard field goal, and it's like, ooh, this, this could be a real thing. And we start talking about misses, but anything sort of inside, you know, 40 and in from there, 40 yards, we, we take it for granted and we think, oh, this is be a tie game. I fell into it uh, last night with the Bills. Oh, this will be a tie game. And then the Chiefs will go and, you know, get a field goal and they'll win the game anyway. It doesn't matter. But then the field goal was missed, and I thought, oh, okay, never mind. We're moving on this way. I mean, 
we can all easily take it for granted. And I think the field goal in football can be taken for granted. Yeah, people hate that kickers decide games, but they do. And that's the reality. And that's the reality of the sport. And uh, it really showed but up. Then, this, it really showed up this weekend. But then also to say they only have one job is not really fair because it's loaded with pressure. Like to say what I saw on social media last night of like, there's only one job to to kick a field goal, kick it and be done with it. Yeah, but do you know how hard that is to, to do that? Like it's it's not as easy to just say, well, you only have one job, so just do it. Well, if it was that easy the game would have been tied and we could have been talking about a different result. And I just, I think it's too easy for people to say, just simply kick the field goal. Brock, I love the, I love the playoff structure for the Sunday games, uh, both in the divisional round and the conference round, the three 30 start for the early game and the six 30 start for the late game. My gosh, like incredible. I mean, the game ended at about nine 30 last night, the Buffalo Kansas city game, which is like right on the nose of my bedtime. I was like a little too hyped up to go to bed right away. But I think if we can get major sporting events started and finished between six 30 and nine 30, my life would be a million times happier. I would love it if the World Series adopted, you know, the oh the six thirty to nine thirty window, oh, please, yeah, yeah please, yeah, yeah. get me on board with this all the time because it's it's just something, right? And I know there's a lot of pomp and circumstance with the Super Bowl, but then they do it in the conference final and they do it all through the weekend. It's like, man. MLB, take a page out of the NFL's oh, book, please. Oh, please, please. please. Hey, Brock, Baseball I mentioned... used to take forever, but... Yeah. Brock, I mentioned the accoutrement here. It was a really awesome sports weekend. I went down to my favorite sports bar on Saturday night, and they had four screens going. They had the Vancouver Canucks and Toronto Maple Leafs. They had the Montreal Canadiens and the Boston Bruins. We asked them to put that on. They had the Toronto Raptors game <laughs> and they had the football game. Brock, it was such an incredible weekend for sports. And part of that was Hockey Day in Canada, which once again was just such a good event put on by Sportsnet and CBC. It was incredible. And the hockey was good too. The Vancouver-Toronto game on Saturday night was spectacular. Yeah, I mean, three-goal lead for Vancouver Toronto comes back, ties the game, loses 6-4. I mean, it was such a good game. I, people can say what they want about, about Ron McClain and how he does things, but Ron McClain is truly, truly the guy who hosts Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, he's truly in his element for, for the whole Hockey Day in Canada. He enjoys interviewing people, standing out there, freezing his petunia off. I mean, he does a real nice job, so credit to everybody. And I know Ron McClain is not the only guy that puts it together, but... Just the way he does it, I really, really, truly enjoy. So yeah. I, I loved it. And I watched uh, most all the games. Uh, battle of Alberta really wasn't a Battle of Alberta, but I digress. It's still on the marquee, and you got to love when uh, Calgary and Edmonton hook up, and Edmonton just keeps rolling with yeah. their 13-game yeah. win streak. You and I will get to Edmonton at some point this week to give them uh, their flowers because, yeah, they have been unbeatable for about a month now. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up next, a company called Clicks was talked about on the show last week. They've introduced a physical keyboard for the iPhone. It was featured in Useful or Useless with Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore. As I recall, the three of us were into it, but we just wouldn't want to buy it. <laughs> Sean Priest weighs in with the pros and the cons of the device and does a bit of compare and contrast to the tactile braille device by Inside One. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. CES wrapped up 10 days ago and people are still buzzing about keyboards, specifically the clicks physical keyboard for the iPhone, basically an extension that you attach to the bottom of your phone that offers you physical keys instead of using a touchscreen to type. And that device is on Sean Priest's mind along with some braille displays. So Sean wants to do a little bit of keyboard chat this morning and I'm all the way on board with that. I'm on board with keyboards. Sean is one of the hosts of Double Tap, which you can find daily at noon Eastern on AMI-audio. Hey, Sean, welcome back to the show, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. See, that's why you're such a professional there. On board with you. That, that's genius, sir. Well done. I don't know, I don't know if I, it's, it's quite genius, but, you know, I've always got my fingers on the pulse over here. My fingers, my fingers on the buttons, uh, Sean. Hey, Sean, let, let's start with the clicks, the, the clicks keyboard, because this one, I think, has garnered a lot of buzz in both people who just loved their BlackBerry and missed physical keyboards, but it's also gotten some buzz inside the blindness and low vision community. Why do you think it's making such a reverberation even two weeks after it was shown off at CES? Exactly. Why is it? I, I Honestly, I don't know. This is why I, I picked these two products to talk about today, because it seems to me that the love affair, the honeymoon, if you will, is over for the touchscreen. Everyone seems to want to go back to physical buttons. And I, I, I've been in trouble in the past on Double Tap on the show <laughs> for saying that I, I see, I don't understand why people, I don't see blindness as an obstacle to using a touchscreen. Mm, and some people mm -hmm. did get in touch with me and say, actually, I find it really difficult. And I, I, I get that. You know, I, I, I accept that absolutely. And it does seem that some people really want to go back to physical buttons. And I'm wondering, you know, because we've seen the Hable one, we've talked about a lot, which is a, a Braille keyboard input, the Revo one, the, the Orbit uh, writer. There's so many. Yeah, of course, you yeah. A, Blue, a Bluetooth keyboard as well, which is the preferred way of inputting into a smartphone or a touchscreen device. The on-screen keyboard, we sort of got blown away with, wow, this is just a flat surface, yet I can use it. The accessibility sort of blew us away. But when it comes to practical terms, who wants to type away on an on-screen keyboard for anything more than a you know a quick text message? Nobody. So the Clicks keyboard, I think, is sort of trying to fill that void. It's maybe it's nostalgia. I mean, I know you're a young man, David. Obviously, well, yeah, <laughs> you're youth on the streets. Oh my but gosh! Before, before there was a, before the touch screens really took over. You know, you had. Uh, the T, what was it called? The T9 keyboard, where yep, you know, one yep. was ABC. And even I remember having some Nokia phones, which crammed a full QWERTY keyboard into the same sort of space as a dial pad. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't find them that easy to type on over an on-screen keyboard anyway. Yeah. But it does seem like clicks, and people do have fond memories of the BlackBerry, as you pointed out, keyboard. I never used it. I never had a BlackBerry. But... um. The Clicks keyboard does seem to be aiming for that market, and it does seem to be picking up a lot of traction, as you said as well, in the blind community. There's a couple of things for, for me with this. It adds a good few inches onto the size of your phone. Yeah, it does. it does. iPhone 15 Pro Max, which is massive anyway, adding a keyboard to the bottom of that. Uh, that's not going to fit. I'm going to have to carry a suitcase around with me. <laughs> 
Plus, as well, there's some concerns about how waterproof it is using it out in the rain. Uh, right, right. And also, it's not MagSafe compatible. So all those MagSafe chargers that you may have where you, it holds the phone up um, aren't going to work with this. It does support wireless charging, so you can still charge your phone while it's in this keyboard case. So, mm, but there are a few concerns. And of yeah. course, you have the... The price point. Yeah, as well. what, what? Yeah, the price point matters here, Sean. What? What? What's? What's some of the chatter around the price? Uh the the price, starting price. I've only got the U.S. dollars at the That's minute. That's fine. starting at one hundred and thirty nine for the iPhone fourteen Pro models. Yeah. The iPhone fifteen Pro Max, which is a bigger, uh, a bigger phone, obviously is more expensive. I actually don't have the price on that, but, it's but that, that's a that's expensive. a pretty that's a pretty expensive accessory. But but again, Sean, I, I think when I when I do consider the positives here, there are people who just like tactile buttons. And even though it makes your phone bigger, a couple of inches bigger in terms of its length and a little bit wider because of the way that it wraps around. At the very least, there's a portability component here, right? I know you've talked about the, the beauty of the Bluetooth keyboard before, mm, and I'm there, yeah. and, I, and I agree with you about the beauty of the portable Bluetooth keyboard, but even the most portable Bluetooth keyboard requires a little bit of schlepping. You gotta fold it up and you gotta have a bag. In this case, <laughs> yes, this phone might be too big for your standard jeans pocket, but it offers just a little bit more of that portability side. And I, I think that matters on the pro side of this. I absolutely agree. Look, I haven't tried this yet, and I am intrigued like everyone else to see how well it performs. Will it really be as good as a full-size Bluetooth keyboard. I hope so because I think there is a need for this. Uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I don't want to go and find a Bluetooth keyboard to type a long email. It's yeah. so much easier. Yeah. Dictation isn't great, so there is definitely a niche in the market, and hopefully this can fill it. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, but when you have big fat hands like mine, though, big fat mitts like me, I, I'm I'm in the same boat as you, Sean. Like I've held blackberries in my life, and the, the, it was just always too small. Like this is maybe where like the legally blind perspective and the totally blind perspective are going to be split on this, because as yes. someone with partial sight. I do not like small buttons and a small keyboard. I'd rather just try to manage with my touchscreen. But if somebody is dealing with total blindness, they may be way more compelled to use something physical. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it depends if you... Uh, I mean, using your thumbs on this, you're not going to be able to touch type. So you're using your thumbs to type. Is there going to be some anchor points, some landmarks, some braille dots on the home keys? Uh, you know, how tactile is it? Hopefully yeah. they've thought of all this already. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. But Sean, you also mentioned you've got this Braille display on your brain. It's basically, it's basically a tactile Braille tablet called the Inside One. So why did you want to insert that into this broader conversation about keyboards? Because again, um, the way this works, and now as soon as I hear tactile Braille tablet, I think of these new breed of tablets, which are multi-line Braille displays. This isn't that. When they say tactile, what they mean is that instead of having Braille keys on it, your usual Perkins-style six keys, it has instead on the glass of the tablet, it has um, indentations for your fingers. So there's no physical buttons, but it is little, little slots to put your fingers in that represent where the Braille keys would be. Oh, wow. And it's using the touchscreen matrix, if you like, to sort of take the actual input. But all it is basically is showing you a tactile representation of where your fingers should be. 
So it's a sort of mix between the two. It's still not the physical buttons, but it is a physical space where you can landmark and anchor your fingers. And that seems to be the problem with touchscreens. It's that spatial awareness which seems to give people a few problems because obviously if you if you, it is sometimes it's difficult to know how far to move how it's just tricky i i was just looking away from the camera i have no idea where the camera is if I, <laughs> I can, it's so easy to just drift away yeah and it's the same on a touch screen so i find this concept really interesting aside from the other this inside one tablet it's called it's running windows so that's nice for a start. It's running the latest Windows. It's running really up-to-date hardware inside, which is unusual for assistive tech. It's usually years behind. And, and plus, it's using this new method of input. So you still have Braille displays on it. You have a Braille cell at the top, 40, I believe, 20 or 40. But instead of the Braille keys, it's using the touchscreen and software in there, but just giving you a place to rest your fingers so you always know exactly where to go. Now, I haven't tried this, and I'm really interested to see how, you know, people who live and breathe Braille and use it every day, if they feel like it's uh, an alternative to physical buttons, or, you know, it just doesn't work, you might yeah. as well just leave it as the normal touchscreen Braille screen input. It, it, it's it, it a could, very it, interesting it, concept. It could run the risk of being a little bit gimmicky if it's inefficient in the way it relays the information that you want. Because what you're describing is a lot of orientation, right? It's getting lost on the touchscreen. Where is the thing that I'm looking for? And if the yes. orientation is no, like if the orientation is inaccurate or unreliable, then you are looking at something that looks really cool because we showed it up on screen. You look at the little tactile markers at the bottom of the screen. It's super, super cool, but it is something that if it doesn't actually deliver its use case, then why on earth would you buy this thing? Oh, you are just so correct. That's exactly the point. It all depends on how this is implemented. The software that's working underneath these little indents to take the input uh, from your taps, you know, how fluid does that feel how responsive does it feel or you know as soon as you do more than three fingers or something does it suddenly you know go all jerky and yeah, doesn't register yeah. so it's it, that is key the software behind it and how it feels that's what all this comes down to how it feels and how actually productive we can be on it but it's just a, a new a, a new direction for these sort of things and i'm, I'm quite interested in it Sean, it's a brand new week. It's Monday morning. Well, Monday afternoon for you out there in the UK. What's coming up on uh, Double Tap this afternoon at noon Eastern on AMI-TV? Uh, AMI-audio. Uh, today on AMI-audio, we're going to talk about the um, Game uh, Accessibility Conference, which is coming up this week with Steve Saylor, who's hosting that. So if you're into your video oh, right games, that's definitely one to check out. And also, I want to go on holiday, but... I'm going to use one of these holiday companies that caters for blind and visually impaired people. I want to know how people have got on with these and oh. how uh, if the extra money that we need to pay to use these services is actually worth it. I need some sun, Dave. Sean, I want to hear all about that experience too. That came up a few months ago in a segment with the new Paula, the founder of a new vision, talking about some of those services. And if yes. you end up getting some of this real world experience, brother, I want to hear all about it. But for now, I just wish you a wonderful day and a wonderful show. Thank you so much. See you soon. That's Sean Priest. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show daily, noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can follow the Double Tap team on X at Double Tap on air. Coming up 
after the break. The technology conversation continues all about updating and upgrading your hardware. This is in the context of a class action lawsuit against Apple. Elizabeth Moeller will lay it out and then the table will discuss. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Roundtable standing by, Nisreen Abdelmajid and Ramya Amuthan. Apple is settling a class action lawsuit. Elizabeth Moeller, you have a few of the details here. I certainly do. So even if it's dead as a doornail, that old iPhone in your junk drawer mm, might be worth something, up to $150. Apple has actually agreed to pay up to $14 million for an iPhone 6 or iPhone 7 that people owned. If they downloaded the operating system before December 2017. And this was a class action lawsuit due to slow down phones. So I want to know, Ramia, starting with you, because we know from the decluttering episode that you're a minimalist. Do you have an old iPhone 6 or an iPhone 7 kicking around in no, your drawer? No. You don't. Okay. I wish, I don't even have a drawer at work anymore, but I wish that <laughs> I kept... Oh, poor Remy. I wish that I had <laughs> kept my, uh, because the phone that I had, like right now I have an iPhone 12, right? And the phone mm -hmm. that I had before this was the 7. That was, mm -hmm. it was a huge major upgrade. So I was Ooh, thinking yeah. like, damn, where did that 7 go? I don't know. It's not my mom who has it. I have no idea where it is, but it's gone. My apartment, had... my apartment is a graveyard <laughs> of uh, old technology that I refuse oh. to throw out. So I've got old Samsung phones, I've got some old tablets, some old laptops. So I'm uh, very bad at disposing of my technology. And Serene, what about you? I'm with you, Dave. I I don't know why I have this habit of keeping the iPhone box empty, of course. Oh my god! Yeah, to... I do the same what? thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I keep it and I always keep it and then I end up throwing like the old one out, but I'll keep the newer one. You know what I'm saying? So whenever I get an iPhone, I'll just throw out the older one and, and just keep the, Wait, box, the newer. Box, box or phone? The, okay, both. So I have the old iPhone 8 and I also have my first very iPod. Wow. Oh yeah, I've got some yeah. old, I've got some old MP3 players uh, lying around as well yeah, that are like yeah. dead to the world like not useful Who knows? at Is this all. For nostalgic purposes or what? No, it's I, I it's because I'm a sentimentalist, Romia, and it's like okay. one of my biggest flaws, uh my heart is too big for my for my brain. <laughs> uh Elizabeth, so where are you at in terms of your drunk drawer full of technology? I feel like the song Breaking Up is Hard to Do comes to my mind because of the home button. I really struggled to get away from the home button, and I have now, but I keep a couple of older iPhones that have the home button. I think just because I, I can't get rid of them for so long, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to manage, so I better keep them around just in case. So I, I do have a 7 and an 8 kicking around in the old drawer here. I'm a I'm not Mr. Hardware upgrade over here. Like I wait till my things are destroyed before I typically upgrade. Like either the battery has to be dying inside eight minutes or like the screen has to be desperately cracked. And even then I had a cracked phone for like two years before I replaced it. Cause I I just 
I'm not, I don't like change, you know? Uh, nostalgic sentimentalist over here. I don't <laughs> like change. I've got a phone that works out fantastically right now that's about three years old. And yes, when Marco Flalo stops by last Thursday and talks all about the Samsung S24, Elizabeth, like, I was, mm -hmm. I was like tempted by it. I'm like, oh, you know, it's only $1,100 and some of those yeah. features look pretty cool and my phone's three years old, maybe it's time. And then Elizabeth, I have to stop myself. Cause like, okay. that's just throwing money away. I've got a perfectly good phone. Don't like change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what, it's funny. I was, I guess, I don't know if you'd say an early adopter, but I was that person who run out as soon as a new phone came out. But I, I was sort of bitten a bit. The last time I did that, the phone I got had a really, really poor battery life and Ugh. it had a lot of bugs. And Ugh. so I thought if I'd waited and if I'd just been patient, two things I'm not good at, waiting and being patient. Perhaps I would have read the reviews or perhaps somebody would have upgraded in my circle of friends and I would have been like, oh, I'm glad I didn't do that. Perhaps the bugs would have been cleared out yeah. by the time I upgraded. But now, see, I've learned now I wait and I observe and then I make the leap. Yeah, that's definitely the case with software updates. But Ramya, staying on the hardware side, by the way, I'm still mad at you for leaving me in Android town all alone that you joined what? the iPhone revolution. Yeah, I hold a grudge. I hold a grudge, Ramya. Uh -oh. That's what I'm I do. I'm so sorry. But, but I'm even... still waiting on you to change. <laughs> I'm, I'm unchanged. I'm unchangeable. <laughs> I'm unchangeable, Ramya. I'm set in my ways. I, I'm curious, even, even with your minimalistness, you are someone who mm. digs on your tech. So so what like what's your level yeah. of temptation to go upgrade your phone when the time comes? Man, like I said, the 7 to the 12 and that's pretty much my norm. I don't really yeah. upgrade unless I absolutely have to. 2 to 3 years minimum for me. And I won't say I'm as bad as you like, you know, completely cracked screen and all that, but really like it's got to be completely inconvenient for me to keep my current device for me to have to upgrade to another one. Like completely inconvenient. Like oh my god, voiceover just will not turn on anymore. I guess I should upgrade, you yeah. know, or yeah. uh the, the uh, like for example with the touch screen and the earphones like when they took the mm -hmm. earphone jack away i was oh. really pissed oh. Oh, but yeah. they were still making the um apple ear pods with the wires but with the the new the uh, dongle it, like the, the, the dongle, dongle. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and then it just got so inconvenient that i'm like oh forget it i guess i'll move to airpods because i kept forgetting one part or another and that's <laughs> the only reason why now i'm an airpod user but yeah i i do struggle to move forward with my technology everything looks cool and sounds cool yeah. but you know it's a matter of adopting it right i i think back to something that i wrote for ami in 2016 something that i put in an mp3 audio file for ami in 2016 uh -huh. about the move to bluetooth and the elimination of the headphone jack mm -hmm. and i remember thinking what a stupid gimmick this is not everybody's going to adopt bluetooth headphones or earbuds how silly <laughs> yeah. is that earbud what are we talking about the golden retriever who plays basketball we're talking about Airbud the movie. This is stupid. And like five years later, I'm like, ah, Bluetooth is great. It's fine. <laughs> totally, yeah, it's, uh, it's totally good. So you do change yeah, just slowly. Uh, you are. <laughs> after I rant about it like an old man, even though I was in my early 30s at the time. Uh, Nazreen, you're hip. You're with it. I bet you're easily tempted by like hardware upgrades. Believe it or not, no. I only will get a new iPhone if mine is completely destroyed okay. or just won't <laughs> work. I... 
I'm tempted by the new cameras, yes. But other than that, I feel like oh. it's all the same to me mm. in my head. That's all the same. I use the same apps. I use everything the same. It's just the cameras that I'm very tempted. Oh, will it capture a nice selfie or whatever? But I'm like, <laughs> it's not. I don't feel like it's worth. I feel like it's so expensive. It's just getting more expensive. Um, it used to be. I feel like uh, laptops. Oh, here comes and here comes old lady Nazarene. Here comes old lady again. Like oh, <laughs> I aged, my man. Day. I aged. <laughs> you're like not even thirty. You're like not even thirty yet. But but I still feel I still feel like they're all the same. I do. It's expensive what about and laptops? it's all the same. You're I'm saying that the, the, the prices, the prices and the iPhones uh, for the ah. iPhones and the laptops, like it's just as expensive as laptops used to be which is right. mind-blowing mm -hmm. but yeah. i will say i'm more tempted to upgrade laptops because of Me the too. vast yes. changes like the upgrades in hardware from yeah. uh chips for apple specifically than i am with my iphone i feel the same way about iphones yeah. nisserine like every iteration is just a little bit better or honestly i don't <laughs> even know it's better it's just a bit different but yeah. with laptops we're seeing huge strides yeah the idea of marginal improvement versus like seismic improvement and definitely that's yeah. something where the hardware side with things like a computer has started to outpace devices because yeah like nisserine mm -hmm said other than maybe a little bit of artificial intelligence or like slightly better cameras like there's really no fundamental difference elizabeth thank you for bringing this topic to the table nazreen you have welcome. a nice afternoon slash rest of the morning ramya before i say goodbye to you you are hosting kelly and ramya this afternoon 2 p.m eastern time on ami what's coming up on the show Yep, so we're going to continue talking technology with Marco Flalo, and he's going to bring up more stuff that CES has covered, that they've covered on Access Tech Live, but the focus is going to be quirky tech, okay? So leave your accessibility aside and come for the fun. Uh, also, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to talk Know Your Rights with Danielle McLaughlin. She's always got good topics to cover around our rights and what to know uh, as Canadians. And we're going to talk orientation and mobility with Mark Rankin. He's talking specifically about fall prevention. So this comes, of course, with the bad weather. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, yeah, and being white cane users or guide dog users, traveling, using public transit, uh, and talking specifically about falls and how to be more aware of your surroundings in this way. Yeah, well, some cities across the country actually believe in snow removal. Toronto just believes, yeah. ah, the bank will eventually melt. Somebody will take care of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Mother Nature will take care of it. In the meantime, uh, just stay inside, Blindy. Uh, Ramya, inside. thank you for this. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. That's Ramya and with it, and you can find Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming up after the break, the Montreal Open Goalball Tournament takes place this weekend. Peter Parsons stops by with a preview. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Montreal Open Goalball Tournament is taking place this weekend, and it's a big deal. Peter Parsons is the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. He can tell you a little bit more. Hey, good morning, Peter. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning, Dave. Peter, I say it in the intro. It's a big deal. How big a deal is the Montreal Open Goalball Tournament? 
Well, it's one of the biggest tournaments we have in Canada. It's uh, an annual tournament that uh, that happens the last weekend in January every year. I've been going to it since uh, since I've been playing goalball. Um, it started back in 2000, and uh, you know it uh, attracts all the top teams from across the country. Um, and in the years past, it's been uh, had more of an international flavor. We've had teams from Japan, Sweden, Australia that I remember, and lots of teams from the U.S. Um, however, this year, it's mainly, uh, it's all Canadian teams. So it's kind of like a preview to our nationals, which we're hosting oh, here in Halifax in May. So it'll be, it'll be interesting uh, to get to see where all the teams are at at this, at this point in the season. How much freedom do the teams have in terms of their composition for an event like this? Because it's an open. Are you restricted to playing with people from your province or can you form super teams? You could form super teams, but in this case, we have uh, all the provincial teams because I think all the provinces have the same thing in mind, which is preparing for nationals. Um, and so, yeah, where it isn't open, you could have a team of sighted players that, like that uh, decided to join, whereas at nationals, you're allowed one um, sighted player per province. Um, but yeah, but we don't get that actually, but I'm just saying you could, you could, yeah, yeah, or it isn't open. No, no, you'd still be blindfolded though. If you were sighted, right. Uh, come on. You still, you still got to play by the rules here. Exactly. Yeah. I've seen a lot of, a lot of sighted people try goal ball. That like, that was way harder than I expected. Oh man. Yeah. I, I've, I've only been on the court a couple of times and I've told you this before. My ribs the next day were destroyed. Like dist I've, I, I've felt sore after a number of sporting events and sporting activities in my life, but I don't think I've ever experienced like the true ache in my rib cage that I felt after playing goal ball for one afternoon. Yeah, the body can definitely uh, take a pounding. And unlike the international tournaments where we have one game a day, um, in the tournament like this that happens over a weekend where we have one game Friday evening and then four on Saturday, oh. and then uh, then the semis and finals on Sunday. So, Oh, my God. P Peter, you guys you guys are wild people. You're wild people out there. Hey, so obviously, Peter, you're, you're going to be there from a competitive point of view, but you're also doing a lot of work from an administrative point of view in terms of the program, both nationally and regionally. What are the storylines that you're following going into the Montreal Open? Yeah, I think it's um, we have a lot of uh, younger athletes um, coming up uh, these days in particular in, in, uh, in Nova Scotia. It, I'm really interested to see how our younger athletes compete at this level. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to, to see how the, uh, how the teams all shape up um, here in late January towards our nationals at the end of May, uh, or sorry, at the beginning of May, we have uh, another big tournament coming up in Vancouver um, in March, which will um, attract uh, international teams. I know there are uh, two teams from Brazil and like three teams from the U.S. that are coming to that one. Even though a lot of Paralympic qualification is already in the books, how does it being a Paralympic year impact events like the Montreal Open, the event you mentioned in Vancouver, or even the Nationals for you guys later in the year? Well, it definitely impacts it. Like at Nationals, for example, we're going to have a training camp attached to it. Of course, with the women qualifying 
for Paris. Uh, that's big. And this Montreal Open is really the first tournament opportunity for those that are on the national teams um, since the pair of Pan Ams in Santiago. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's you know getting back into the the full swing with the big push towards Paris 2024 for the women and for the men. It's uh, you know kind of a longer uh, quadrennial um, where yeah, we didn't yeah. qualify. So yeah, lots of um, lots of rebuilding on the men's side. And, and that's where it begins in it, to a degree, right? Like you're starting to try to crystallize what the next four years are going to look like based on these events, right? For Like you said, for the women, they've got a pathway to this Paralympics, but the men needs to need to figure out who they are, what they want to be and what their path is for the next three years. Yeah, exactly. It's two different pitchers for sure on the yeah. men's and women's side. And we have uh, some good uh, young players coming up, like I said, on the men's side. And uh, the women really need to uh, put their all in for, for Paris 2024. Yeah, just get dialed in completely. Uh, Peter, when you say one game Friday, four games Saturday, and potentially two games on Sunday, and considering the physical toll, I, do you guys get to have fun when you're in Montreal, or is it just all business? We get to have some fun, uh, sometimes maybe a little too much fun for some, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because really, uh, really sleep is such an important, um, <laughs> important part of um, of high performance, right? Sleep and hydration. So, you know, you can stay up late hydrating, but it might not be the type of hydration that you actually require as an elite athlete. Do, 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 you, do you guys stay downtown or are you in Laval, South Shore? Where do they put you guys up? Yeah, we're we're downtown Montreal, oh, so you even know more dangerous, right? You know, so it's also you know we get to get together only so often, and so there's a real uh, social component to uh, getting together with your friends from across the country who play goalball. But I always say to the guys, like you know. We could party after we win. Um, but yeah. <laughs> See, that's leadership right there through and through. <laughs> hey, uh, Peter, speaking of communities descending upon major Canadian cities, the mixed martial arts community descended upon Toronto over the weekend for UFC 297, an event that got a lot of media buzz, probably for all the wrong reasons that I do not want to get into this morning because I'll start cursing and swearing and uh yeah, I'm just going to leave it. I'm just going to leave it there. But uh, UFC 297, there was a changing of the title. There were a lot of decision wins. The event ended well after one in the morning. Uh, your takeaways from UFC 297. Well, I think the big takeaway, uh, as you mentioned, there was a changing of the title. And it was, uh, it was a great uh, main event fight. Uh, Dracus Duplessis is now the new champ. He's from South Africa. He... Um, he has a very well-rounded game. Oftentimes when you have like the best fighters in the world fighting each other, it doesn't always end up being the most exciting, but the main event was a very exciting fight and very dramatic Close, as far as closely contested. Close. Yeah. It was a split decision that, uh, you know, when Bruce Buffer was reading the scorecards and said, and you're waiting to hear new or end still. And it was, uh, I was really cheering for Duplessis. So I was really happy to hear <laughs> and new, so, yeah, it was very uh, exciting fight that was very closely contested, like you said. Um, and, uh, you know, the Canadians, the Canadians didn't fare the best yeah. on, uh, on Saturday night. Unfortunately, um, they were two and seven, uh, two of the wins being by the two Canadian women's fighters who beat the Brazilian opponents who actually dominated their opponents and uh, won performance of the night bonuses, which was great for them. But uh, there was also two 
decisions that were really, um, well, one was questionable. Brad Katona, who won the Ultimate Fighter two times, the only person to do so from Winnipeg, he um, he lost a decision that I thought he won. But there was a complete robbery with um, Surrey City from um, Ontario, who uh, originally from Ukraine. His parents moved over from Ukraine when he was six years old. It's quite a story. They're both doctors, and they moved over for opportunity for him. I don't think they expected he was going to become an MMA fighter, but <laughs> yeah. he uh, he ended up uh, yeah he ended up losing a decision where. He he lost the first round and he clearly won the second two rounds and he lost the split decision. I had to go on this website that I always often checked, MMADecisions.com, which shows the media scoring. And the media was 21, 21 um, media members scored it for him, 21 to zero. It was the unanimous wow, that wow. the media scored it for him because um, at the time I was like, I was in disbelief with the decision, and uh, and also to add insult to injury, his opponent missed weight by four pounds. Oh, double and whammy! So, double whammy! Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, that was, the, that was tough. the scoring side of combat sports is still a really rough ride, Peter. It's one mm. of the things that I think really holds the sport back. Sometimes there's going to be a close fight, and and you're going to find people feeling either way about a decision. But it really feels like the judging side of the conversation. This changes people's lives, right? To end up mm. being on the wrong side of a decision loss means you're getting half the pay for showing up for showing up to the event. You've now got that loss on your record. Your way up the ladder is going to be deeply compromised. There's got to be something figured out in regards to judging. I know it's a big question. You've only got about a minute here to answer it. Yeah, there really does. Like the 10-point the must scoring system, for one thing, has been coming from boxing where they have many more rounds to work with. And also oftentimes in the past, especially you had boxing judges judging MMA fights. But yeah, maybe they need more judges, maybe five judges instead of three. Open scoring has been brought up as a possibility. At least you know where you stand in the fight then yep. going into after, the third so, round. So after every round, people would know who won the round. The judges would immediately have to report. Exactly. That's that's one of the ideas. And, and the um, counter argument to that is that fighters would stall, which I don't agree <laughs> with, because oftentimes you clearly know when a fighter's up two rounds to nothing, for example, and you don't see them stalling it out in the third round. Um, you know, you see the other fighter having to press more, but at least this way they know where they're at. Um, that That's an idea that I that I like, but I don't really see happening, yeah. though. Yeah. Peter, I, I love it when we get to dive a little bit into MMA, even though uh, the UFC mm -hmm. is currently an organization that I'm a little bit on the outs with. Uh, I like it when we get to dive into the combat sports world. Nice to know I'm not the only one out here in this, in this ocean bobbing around Peter, thank you for this. Safe travels to Montreal. Have a great time. Thanks, Dave. That is Peter Parsons. He is the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry, things kick off again tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. 
That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.